Welcome to Inside the Director Circle and this episode on lessons from the military. I'm Jason Langford-Brown, your host, founder of the Director Circle, practicing business advisor and coaching psychologist. In the, in the last episode, we spoke to Chris Carter and Joe Williams about our new leadership canvas and using that as a tool to navigate the complex world of leadership, but more importantly, how to cut through that and start to get some quick wins on moving your leadership forward. Today, we really want to focus on things that Chris did in the military that actually he's brought forward and can really, really help us um, in terms of lessons, um, again, and practical tools that will help us on a leadership journey. So as I said, Chris, Chris joins us again, uh, Chris Carter, MBE, as I've mentioned before, leading projects uh, leader for engineering consultancy, Arup, um, works on projects like HS2 and, and the Commonwealth Games. But uh, for those that didn't join us on the first episode, Chris is a former Colonel and Commanding Officer of the British Army, has delivered leadership development to other armed forces around the globe and teaches to officers at the British Defence Academy. And Joe, Joe Williams, CEO of the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital, NHS Trust. Uh, as I think I said in the last episode, Joe's really is a very modern progressive leader. And I think that's reflected in the RH's performance as one of the leading trusts in the UK. So before we get into today's conversation, uh, very quickly, uh, bef- remember that just a snapshot of what happens um, within our business leader community. So if you want to get more involved or access further insights, visit directors-circle.com and click join the community button. So, Chris, if we can start with you, when I was reflecting uh, before today's uh, episode around, you know, uh, the lessons for the military, and I kind of thought of the, of the work I did with you years ago when we brought business leaders into the army. I think one of the things that I think I probably use the most um, is the notion of debriefing, which we talk about on our canvas as uh, the need to learn and refine as leaders. Uh, and I see b- business leaders um, and I suppose non-military leaders are really, really poor um, at stopping whether things are, are go well or go badly because I think both are equally important and going okay what happened there what went well what didn't go well what did we learn what do we need to change and I saw that as a very kind of constant and strong thing in the army is that something that is a lesson you've taken into your into your civilian life uh, or are there other things that you think are bigger lessons for you from the military it, it, it is a lesson uh, and, the, and the reason why I I is to embrace that lesson is, is your feedback. Uh, and the reason for that is, is, is the debriefing process is so ingrained in, in, in the British military way of doing things that it is, it is just second nature. Uh, and pretty much from day one, day two of training as, a, as an officer cadet or, or a recruit in the, in, the, in the British military, you're constantly, after every practice, after every exercise, after every sort of evaluation, you are being asked by your instructor by, by your by your by your leaders you know how how did that go you know what went well what could have gone better you know what would you do differently next time those those three basic questions uh, and, and variations of them are constantly being asked of you you know throughout your whole uh, initial training uh, uh, segment uh, as, as, as a junior leader or as a, or as, a, as a young soldier and then throughout throughout your career both on formal training courses uh, on exercises uh, and just in sort of routine day-to-day day-to-day life it's it's just woven into into the way we constantly do business um and you know it it, it has a very close um you know resemblance to kaizen continuous improvement and another other practices you you find find elsewhere but it, it it is ingrained it is it is part and parcel exactly how we how we do yeah. everything yeah. and very powerful yeah, and I think it's interesting you know, that link with continuous improvement because I think in business, continuous improvement isn't that common. We see it probably more in, in manufacturing, but even in manufacturing, it's not it's not uh, universal. So, 
yeah, I think that ingraining is interesting. But uh, Chris, I mean, for you, maybe maybe we'll try and pick three things that you think probably are the biggest lessons for the military that you sort of take forward now into the commercial world. So where would you start as your kind of number one lesson um, from the military that you sort of take forward to, to today? Yeah, well, well, I would take I, I would take that that last example as, as the number one lesson. Okay, uh, and I think there's a very interesting extension of it, which is which is now starting to be uh, em- embraced, uh, particularly within the army, and that, and that and, and that is um, uh, getting comfortable with failure, uh, and particularly you know out of operations, uh, during training, during 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 development, pushing ideas, concepts, people, uh, equipment, etc., to to the point of safe failure. Um, so not doing things which are stupidly risky and and a risk to life, uh, but but practicing and testing the way we do business to, to the point of failure, trying new and different approaches, trying different ways of, of engaging with, uh, outthinking, outmaneuvering uh, our adversaries, um, and embracing failure, learning from failure, and then using that failure to derive lessons in order to, to adapt. And, you know, and we see that sort of language, you know, and uh, that, that approach, you know, within the sort of wider business community, you know, particularly, you know, people like James Dyson, you know, very famously talking about mm. uh, how, fa- how a thousand failures, uh, if, yeah. if that were the number, you know, were instrumental to, to the one success of, of you know, fin- finalizing some of his tech, te- Technological uh, uh, innovations. So, so that approach we're starting to embrace with, with, within the military, and that's getting us away from perhaps previous practice, which was to test and exercise and, and uh, challenge extensively, but being very uncomfortable with the idea that we might fail. So, we're always slightly hedging our bets. We're always being, uh, you know, perhaps at the very least unconsciously uh, safe and cautious, and, and thereby missing opportunities to. to Trying, you know, radical innovation, different ways of doing things, uh, that uh, and you know, tr- took us down the path of being quite conventional. And and uh, you know, we all talk about thinking outside the box, but how often do we really think outside the box and do something yeah, radically yeah, different? Yeah. It's uh, a nice buzzword in, in our approach. So so that is one emerging area within the military. And there's a big. You know, we spoke on the last podcast about psychological safety. Yeah, and that is absolutely critical. You've got to make it safe for people to yeah. fail. And I think that then opens up a whole you know, can of worms in terms of leadership and culture and so forth that we have to tackle in order to genuinely be comfortable with failure. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, Chris, because you know you say it's an emerging area from the military that you've you've sort of taken as a lesson. But I think although there are pockets, Dyson is a, is a good example. But I think generally business leaders are not comfortable with failure. They don't allow their people to fail. People don't feel safe safe enough to fail without getting into trouble. Um, uh, yeah, the irony is, I think it, it, failure is it, the, the, the stakes are higher in the in the, in the military. Um, most business leaders can afford to fail and fail a lot, um, and probably fail quicker because the, the consequences are probably going to be less. And it just reminds me of some language that I use. I always I always try and use the language risk. Is it risky or reckless? Because if it's risky, it means if it goes wrong, we can probably recover. Yeah. If it's reckless, we can't. So I mean, that's how I look at it. But Joe, what about for you? Is there is there anything in that for you in terms of you know the you know, you're you're in a hospital, so failure there can be quite tricky as well. I should imagine. So, is there an environment for failure in your in in your in your hospital? Um, wow, lots in what Chris has just described. I, I guess the first thing is if I, if there was such a thing as an NHS dictionary, um, and you look at debrief, uh, a discussion where uh, something that you've done wrong, we want to talk to you about. 
So we, I don't think we use debrief in a in a positive way. I think we okay. do it when it goes wrong. Ah, uh, okay, interesting. So that that's interesting in terms of actually how we think about it. Um, I, I, I suppose it's going to sound a bit like an excuse. So obviously, if I think of when I've worked operationally, um, and you know, if you think of something like the A and E target, um, you know, was was I taught to take a risk? Well, clearly no, because I'd either got a regulator from you know with the CQC. I'd got NHS England, it's public money. So obviously I need to be careful what I do because I'm mm. going to be, um, I'm going to be, somebody's going to comment on what I've done. And also there's, as Chris said, there's potentially a life at the end of it. So we we are, we do struggle around that, having the confidence to say, somebody just having your back, to be fair, to say, we'll have a go. And if I think when I came to the Royal Orthopaedic, we were struggling with delivering our referral to, to treatment target. And it was it was so poor the performance that I went to our board of directors and to our governors to say the only way of putting this right is for us to stop reporting, have a go at fixing it. The performance will get worse, but we'll have a plan to get it better. Yeah. Somebody having the confidence to do that. And and that's what we did. And then the staff knowing that they could try different things. And know that it was okay because sometimes it's just the fear of somebody just saying, "Can I try this?" and and I and I still think we have a little bit of that in the NHS. You know, people can see what needs to be done, but they also know they've got to sort the here and now. And it's that breathing space and the capacity to say, "But actually, I could make, you know, I might not make the big changes, but I could make next next week look a bit different." So how do I do that? Um, and obviously through the patient safety strategy that's about to run through the NHS. I mean. You know, Chris talked about actually people being confident to do that. But if staff aren't able to say, um, you know, to, to talk about failure, then you'll never have a safe organisation because people need to be feel safe and confident to be able to say, I can see something or I can see a problem and know that there's not going to be ramifications with them raising it. So um, I, th- I think something probably I'll take away is around the debrief, because to me, it's a very negative um, it, yeah. it makes me think is you know what have you done Joe you need to defend what you've done as opposed to let's talk about the good stuff that you've done and actually what we could improve on yeah and I, I love I, yeah I mean I love the, um, the comment about you know having their back I mean that's as a leader it's really our job isn't it, to have people's back it's what psychological safety is all about but I, li- I like the, the comment about actually almost laying it as part of the expectation that it is actually going to probably go wrong it might get worse and that's a nice way to sort of frame it um, but yeah, you're right. I think that was a, the thing I really took away from from working with the army is, is they don't just debrief things that go wrong. They just debrief everything. <laughs> now, most things go right. So it means by definition, most of the things are getting debriefed are the things that have gone well. And I've, I've definitely taken that in with some of my clients. I did some work in the US recently where we did exactly that. We actually only debriefed the successful projects and the lessons that were taken from that and the continuous improvement to go back to what Chris was saying was, was phenomenal. So yeah, I think uh, that is definitely a powerful, a powerful um, piece from from the debris thing. Okay, Chris, back to you. So, have we got another lesson, something different, maybe that uh, you can take from the military that you think yeah, would be worth um, considering? Yeah, heading, yeah. Heading back to the, the topic of leadership, uh, one of the things as, as part of um, defining its approach to to leadership that the the British Army has done o- over the last uh, 10, 15 years is is introduced. What, what it calls the, the leader's code, which is which is a, um, a mnemonic, L-E-A-D-E-R-S, which I can I, I can def, I can define in a, in a moment, um, describing what 
good leadership behaviors in, in the in the British Army are. Uh, and I've got to say, when it first came out uh, around about uh, 2012, uh, it got a lot of stick and a lot of negative criticism in, internally, mostly amongst the kind of leaders, you know, senior non-commissioned officers and, and, and officers within the army on the basis that it was it was an obvious mnemonic it was it was leaders talking about leadership and it was all kind of sort of backward engineered and, and, and a bit uh, a bit contrived uh, and not necessarily relevant uh, and I went to a number of uh, sort of army-wide presentations you know rolling out the, this concept and sort of listened to sort of various views and I, I, I must admit I I was I was pretty much in the it's a bit cheesy and I don't really see the relevance camp uh, until I saw a presentation from a from an organization who had piloted the approach for the, for the previous two years within that that organization and the most powerful presentation was from uh, uh, a private soldier uh, uh, in his Particular regiment uh, known as a rifleman, uh, who stood up in front of the assembled great and good of the uh, of the British Army uh, at Sandhurst, uh, and gave a personal perspective, one of the best talks of the day on how he had experienced the, the leader's code. And, and the key thing in, in his talk, um, which, which re really resonated with me and, and stays with me still, is he said for the first time as, as the most junior rank within the British Army, we had been told what to expect from our leaders. Uh, and as soon as we had this knowledge, he said, you could guarantee that every corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, captain major, lieutenant colonel, uh, you know, within the organization had 300, 350 uh, riflemen's eyes upon them, uh, judging them you know, in terms of their leadership ability. And he pointed out, you know, how empowering that was for the, for the most junior rank in, in the battalion uh, and how uh, what a powerful development tool that must be for non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers within that battalion. You know, your every action and behavior uh, you know, being judged according to a, a common standard. Some, you know, perhaps fairly on occasions, perhaps a little unfairly on other occasions. But uh, that struck me you know, greatly. And I thought, well, what a powerful tool this is. Uh, and from that point, you know, I, I always defended the, the leader's code, which is still in use uh, you know, against a skeptical uh, audience you know, on, on that basis. That's really powerful, Chris. I think it's a number of things. I think, you know, I love actually that it makes people, people that are in leadership positions, making them accountable to being leaders, because I think there are, you know, and I'm just talking generally now, far too many people <laughs> who really want to go into politics and all sorts of things where they, they want the position of leadership and the power and trappings and the money, but don't really want to do what do what it takes to be a leader, which we know isn't always an easy task. Um, so there's that 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 piece there. But I think also for me, it's a, a really good example of the extension of culture um, because culture is you know way beyond the core values and the core beliefs. You know, it has to it has to be translated in some standards and behaviours. And again, I work with leadership teams a lot where they if they go that far with their culture, um, they're very keen to get their people to come up with their standards and their codes, but they don't want to do it themselves. So I think and I say it's kind of hard to expect your teams to uh, come up with their codes and standards if you're not prepared to have some for yourself. So to actually make that leap, I think, is, and I've seen it done in in some businesses where it's it's been very equally as powerful. So I kind of I've, I get why that resonated with you. Um, Joe, for you. Is there anything in that in terms of that kind of what what people should be expecting from their leaders? Are there anything you've done at the RH that kind of compares to that, or is it something you're you're thinking about? I suppose it's more about reinforcing the importance as as Chris has just described. So what we know is that with the annual staff survey that we do across the NHS that we've done for some years, what we know is that people leave 
the NHS because of poor leaders and poor managers. It's one of the biggest reasons. And actually, what we don't, what we haven't done very well in the past is we haven't um, taught our leaders what it good, what good leadership looks like, and also um, how you know just some of the basics that we're trying to do about their impact on individuals. Um, so some of the work that we've started on the cultural piece is actually, you know, something that you've always known that's performed, that they're not no longer, they might be struggling. It goes back to what we talked about in one of the previous episodes about what else is going on in this individual's life that you need to get to understand to see how you can support them. Um, yeah. And don't just then fall down on, you know, the typical I'll ring HR or I'll get a policy and procedure out. Actually, you know, what is it? that you know that's that's in front of you that's somebody that you know who you work with so um the work that we're probably going to end up doing over the next 12 months now is um we are very values led and i know that all our you know 1300 staff know about those values there's behaviors bit in terms of that they understand how um they should be treated while at the roh but the bit that i want to now do is the bit that when they see those behaviors that are um that aren't aligned with our values they feel confident to call it out. Yeah. Um, but actually, before we do that, we've got to have our managers. We want to train them to make sure that, you know, that they understand the culture and the vision and everything that we're trying to do. But it is something we've never taught in the NHS. Certainly, that um, wasn't something that I was taught in terms of it was kind of, you know, see something, make sure you don't want to look like that and you want to change how you are. And in terms of, you know, what makes a good leader, but we don't instinctively train the NHS at all. Yeah, and I think it's really that's really powerful about you know your 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 leader's code, whatever that might end up looking like, where it say it empowers people to call you out. Um Chris, is, is was there some of that in, in the leader's code for the military where you know it's empowering people to call out those leaders or is it not quite well, that advanced that yet? Takes, referencing the sort of referencing the previous uh, podcast, that, that does take us back to uh, to the you know le- leaders are known and and do model and what leaders are and the champions of values and standards set, setting the example and there's there's, there's, a, there's a great quote um, from um, um, a senior officer in, in the Australian army which uh, which you can find online which is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept mm, yeah. uh, and, that, and that was uh, and that was used in, in the Australian military as, you know, as, as a follow-up to a number of, sort of disciplinary uh, incidents. And there was a very clear uh, message you know, to, to the Australian Defence Forces from, from one of their senior officers, you know, telling everybody, setting out what the standard was and, and what was expected and the standard that would be applied. And he used the phrase, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept, making absolutely clear that, that there is no room for the, for the onlooker and the bystander. You, you either go, go along with negative behavior or you call it out, you challenge it. And depending upon your, your position within the organization, you, you deal with it. Um, but you know, there's, there's no gray space, there's no gray space in, in that respect. Uh, and I think, you know, that, and that message yeah, of a number of years ago now, you know, resonated at the time with, within the army and was within the British army and was, you know, widely, widely used as, as, a, as a leadership uh, sort of development uh, message that, the, that we, we define our standards and our values. We hold them dear. We believe in them, and therefore, it is every leader's job, you know, within you know, within the, the span of control or authority of influence, whatever, to to make sure that they're applied. 
Yeah, and thank you for raising that because that's probably one of my favorite lessons from the military. I use it always when I do culture with leaders um, because that's exactly what leaders need to be thinking about. They they can't behave one way and expect everybody else to behave differently. Um, I suppose there's a simpler way of putting that, but yeah, really powerful stuff. But I, I'm conscious of time, guys. So I, I thought as this was all about lessons, I'd be really interesting. Put you up, probably going to put you on the spot now. If you can think about what was one of the biggest lessons you received from somebody that led you in your in your career as you as you've kind of moved up into the position you're in now, is there anything you could share with us in terms of a great lesson you received from a from a leader that led you somewhere through your career that was really quite game changing for you? I'll pause for a second just to give you time to think because we as ever we don't prep these we like to <laughs> we like to let these conversations grow organically. Joe, is there anything for you that uh, you can think of that was a real lesson for you on your leadership journey? Um. It's probably from about six years ago, and it was a chief exec that I respected and admired. And they said to me um, to be my authentic self. And um, I, and, and although it's something that's really simple, I think it takes a, a while. So whilst I then went into a chief exec role, you do spend, uh, I think it's something that I said earlier about looking left and right. You spend your time looking around the table and thinking, do I need to model my behavior like that person? Do I need to sound like that person? Do I need to look like that person? Um, don't waste your time, would be my advice, um, because um, you've got to where you've got to through your own ability and people have appointed you for being your authentic self and you just need to be it and have the confidence uh, in that. Yeah, I think Chris said it earlier, be the best version of you yeah. rather than trying to be a poorer version of somebody else, yeah. Chris, yeah. Uh, lesson you could share maybe? There's, there's there's loads I could I could uh, reference, but but one I'll, I'll highlight was was a very early lesson in my military career. So at the age, the comparatively young age of 21, my first sort of uh, uh, phase of training at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, uh, we we were on as part of a sort of particularly arduous uh, and testing. Uh, 10-week phase of, of training and we were we were lucky and we had uh, an incredibly uh, inspirational uh, senior NCO staff sergeant who who was our principal instructor and he, he was pretty much feared throughout the organization because he he was he was a parachute commando trained uh, soldier uh, he, he just returned from the Falklands war he was incredibly uh, fit and demanding in terms of what, what he, he expected of us. And you know, everyone looked at our, at our group and said, you know, poor you, you've got you know, this, this individual uh, as, as your staff sergeant. But the thing about him was, uh, he, he would put us through some incredibly testing uh, uh, exercises and, and, and practices. But even from week one, week two, uh, once that was over, once he achieved the effect on us that he'd wanted to, to achieve, either in terms of testing us or, or develop, developing us, he would call a halt, he would gather us in, and he would explain to us exactly what he had done and why. Uh, and you know, for, the, for the period of time in question, which is the, the, the mid-80s, you know, an incredibly sort of uh, you know, modern approach, he would say, this is what I did to you, this was the reason why, this was the effect I was trying to achieve you know, within you, and this is what I got. And these are the lessons for you, both as individuals and in your future careers uh, as army officers. Uh, and then we'd have that debrief. He'd be completely honest with us. And then sort of 10 minutes later, we were back to whatever it is, you know, running up hills with sort of logs <laughs> or, or whatever it was. But it was that degree of honesty and openness. Wow. 
openness. Uh, and you know, it was not a soft approach. It, it was a very demanding approach, but he was incredibly open and honest about what he was trying to achieve uh, with us uh, you know, at, at all times. Uh, and that always, you know, whenever, when you were carrying the log or, or the stretcher or the burden or whatever, or you know, swimming through water-filled tunnels or whatever it was, you, know, you always knew that with, with this individual, there was a purpose, even if you couldn't quite see it at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, and I think it's a, such a powerful lesson, that Chris. But we, we could talk about that for two hours on its own. But uh, yeah, I think leaders massively underestimate how much people are prepared to do if they only understood why they were doing it and if it was linked to a purpose, as you said. So I think there's a huge lesson there. But I love the extension of that for me in terms of actually using it as a learning tool as well. I think is I've not heard that before. That's that's really really powerful. Yeah. So thank you for sharing Amazing. that. Chris, Joe, thank you so much again. It's been a great couple of uh, episodes. Uh, you know, we probably haven't done it even anywhere close to justice in the time we have, unfortunately. But I think there's some great insights there for our listeners. So, say so thank you both for joining us. In the next episode, we're going to slight diversion, and we're going to start talking about all things sales and what does it mean to have a high-performing sales environment. We're going to be joined by our sales scientist Mike Boyle over from Australia. Um, so, in for I think again some great insights on that subject, and if I know Mike, some fun as well. So, in the meantime, if you want more on this subject on leadership reach out to us at directors-circle.com or you can reach out to one of our knowledge partners, Lucid. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to Inside the Director's Circle.